Will you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? The passage today is Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 79, page 856 in the Pew Bibles, starting in 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Gracious Father, what a gift it is to raise our voices in celebration and joy, uh, proclaiming uh, the great truth of who you are and what you have come and accomplished. And now, Lord, as we open your word, we pray that we would hear from you and what you would say to us by your Spirit, to change our hearts, to make yourself known to us, God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like many of you, this past week, uh, the Levering household has been, I would not, I think frantic is too much of a term, but diligently completing our Christmas shopping before the deadline arrives later this week. And like many of you, I would guess, I find myself in this whole kind of you know, flurry of shopping activity to have uh, mixed emotions about it all. On the one hand, I frankly despise the consumerism and materialism that seems to overtake this time of year. On the other hand, I do enjoy the opportunity to express love to someone through a gift. And so I'm kind of a grouchy slash happy mess this time of year. But by far the most annoying part of the whole enterprise for me is the kind of unspoken but ever-present expectation that you have to find that one gift that's going to take their breath away. Whoever it is you're shopping for, there's just that, that drive to find this, this, you know, the kind that I'm talking about, the kind of gift that when they open it, they won't be able to believe their eyes. They'll just kind of stand there for a moment in confusion, trying to take it on board that this actually belongs to them. That's like the epitome of gift giving, right? Uh, I'll never forget the expression on our kid's face last spring when their nana surprised them with a new puppy. 
And it just, you know, for a moment, they just could not process for a while that this dog they were holding was actually their dog. It was pretty fun. It was, you know, too good to be true in their mind. Eight months later, our furniture bears witness to the fact that it is true that that (laughs) dog does belong to us. But it was a marvelous experience at the time. And, and that's kind of, you know, that's the epitome of gift giving, to, to create this reaction of marvel and wonder. Uh, but the annoying part about it is that it's virtually impossible to pull off, at least for me. Uh, to do so, you have to kind of find this magical and elusive intersection between desire and surprise. So they have to want the gift but they can't expect that they would actually get it, okay? Which really narrows down the field when you're trying to shop. You can't just get something off of the list because then it's not a surprise. Uh, Instead, you either have to figure out how to read minds, which I have not accomplished yet, or they either have to forget that they want it, (laughs) which means you're, you know, planning in March or April way too far ahead, Uh, or it has to kind of be this thing that's like prohibitively expensive or extremely rare so that they don't expect that they would get it. And that's too much work and too much money. So the whole thing's really a cruel trick. (laughs) Now, my wife pled with me last night not to be a Grinch about Christmas with you, but there is a point. I'm not just trying to kind of, you know, overanalyze the gift-giving process and ruin it for everyone. (laughs) The point in that, is to illustrate, to help us think about what is it that makes the marvel of Christmas so marvelous. When we speak about the marvel or the wonder of Christmas, what are we talking about but the intersection of desire and surprise? You don't marvel over something that you don't want, nor do you marvel over something you simply expect. Wonder or awe or marvel happens when desire and surprise meet and our hearts explode with joy. It's too good to be true. And that's what we see, the sense of marvel and wonder bursting from the heart of Zechariah in the song that he sings in Luke 1, our passage that Eric just read a few moments ago. But to understand Zechariah's joy, Zechariah's wonder. We, read, we need to understand a bit of his story and the story of ancient Israel, the people to whom he belonged, if we're going to be able to kind of take on board the true joy and marvel that's happening at Christmas. So we read uh, in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. And you're welcome to follow along in the Bibles in front of you or on the screen behind me. In Luke 1, 5, that in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So this is the introduction to Zechariah's story. But you see right away, his story is part of a bigger story, the story of ancient Israel. 
That's the people he belongs to. And their story goes all the way back to the earliest chapters of human history and the earliest chapters of the biblical story. What God had envisioned for creation in the beginning, that he would have, you know, that humanity might love and serve him as his children, made in his image for his glory. And what was, you know, rather quickly distorted by the fall, by human rebellion and sin against God and his plan, God promised to restore that vision through a covenant people, Israel. That's the people Zechariah belongs to. That's the people whose story makes up most of the Old Testament. And God began to fulfill this promise to restore his plan, to accomplish his goal for his creation through a promise to a man named Abraham, who, like Zechariah, was unable to have children into his old age. But God promised to take this man, Abraham, and to make him into a great nation, And not only that, but to bless all nations through him. And he begins to make good on that by giving him a son. There's hope in the background of Zechariah's story. A man who had been barren into his old age, and yet God gives him a son. And and through that son, God builds the people that we know as ancient Israel. He rescues them from Egypt and makes them into his own special nation. He gives them his law, his covenant, that he might rule them as his special people. And he gives them the tabernacle that he might dwell with them as their special God. He gives them the priests so that he can continue to dwell with them even when they mess up and that they can worship him. Uh, Zechariah, in fact, is one of those priests. That's the line he comes from. Uh, The men whose job it was to bring offerings before the Lord to the temple to atone for the sin of the people and to bring worship to his name. And eventually God even gives Israel a king to rule them as his representative, David being the the great pattern of that kingship and one who was promised to have a descendant on his throne forever. So it's a beautiful story, a rich heritage that Zechariah brings into this story. But despite God's mercy and presence and favor on Israel, much of their story is one of idolatry and rebellion. Uh, Few were as blameless and righteous as Zechariah and Elizabeth, and none of them were perfect. And so what should have been a story filled with the light of God's glory and his presence and blessing over his people throughout the Old Testament, instead gradually becomes overshadowed by the darkness of sin and shame and judgment. And you you feel this tension throughout that story. And the judgment ultimately came in the form of a foreign oppressor, a nation of Babylon, whom God sent to punish his unfaithful people. Israel's king was dethroned, her temple was destroyed, her people were deported, and the glory of God departed from them. It's a tragic, tragic story. But the flame of God's promise to Abraham, even though that fire had kind of dwindled down to a mere candle flicker, it never went out. It was never extinguished, even in the darkness of foreign oppression. And 
while Israel sat in that shadow of darkness as prisoners to Babylon, that flame was rekindled through the voice of God's prophets who came promising a day. A day would come when God would raise up a new king for Israel, when God would raise up a new priest to restore proper worship to God in a new temple, a day when God himself would return to his people, that their relationship would be restored, their sin would be forgiven, their shame would be removed, they would finally be able to do what they were made and rescued to do, to worship God and serve him without fear. And that day would be announced by a new prophet who would come in the spirit and power of Elijah through whose message the glory of the Lord would be revealed and all flesh would see it. This is the promise, the hope of Israel. And even though by Zechariah's day, Israel had been back in the land for several hundred years, much of what God promised through the prophets still hadn't been fulfilled. They were still living under foreign oppression, not Babylon, but now Rome. There was still no king on David's throne, and Israel was still plagued by sin and shame and unbelief. As a people, as a nation, they felt barren and empty, just like Zechariah and Elizabeth. As Zechariah longed in his heart for God to visit him and his wife with a child, so Israel longed for God to visit them in redemption. Their hearts were filled with desire but they were pretty much empty of expectation that anything would actually change. But as Zechariah, this priest, goes about his daily regular activity in the temple, he finds out that everything is about to change. Look with me at Luke chapter 1, verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, He, Zechariah, was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw it, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So here in the temple, Zechariah is overcome first with fear at the angel's appearance and then with wonder, desire and surprise just met in a head-on collision, and his heart is all over the place. 
what he and his wife have longed for for ages, but never expected to become true. They were advanced in years, has just slapped him upside the face. They're going to have a son. And not only what his wife and he had longed for, but what Israel as a nation has longed for for ages, the return of the Lord to his people, is going to follow on the heels of this son. God is going to visit his people again. That news is so shocking that Zechariah doesn't really believe it. It's too good to be true. Therefore, it must not be true. Now, we see his reaction in, in 118. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And then the angel jukes him in his unbelief. I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the days that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. God is doing something marvelous, and it's almost too much to take on board for Zechariah. And though he was you know, clearly wrong to doubt what God had said, uh, when you think of his story, it's not hard to identify with him, though. I mean, when you have worn disappointment like a garment every day of your life, along with what was considered to be a reproach in that day, to be childless, it's not hard to think that nothing is really ever going to change. And some of us, you know, know what that feels like in different arenas of life. Uh, to be stuck in a, in a job or a career that you never planned on, that you don't love, and that you would love to find a way out of, but there's really no good way to do it. This is just going to be my career. Uh, or when you live with chronic pain or a chronic illness or disability, just kind of you know, wishing just for a day to be able to live like the rest of mankind. Um, or, you know, like Zechariah and Elizabeth's very experience, to long for and try for a child year after year, only to remain barren. Or as a single person, to, to long and pray for a spouse, and yet the Lord never seems to provide that right person. I mean, after a while of longing and waiting and praying and nothing happening, it's easy to resign yourself that this must be my reality and just to give up the dream, even though we never can really quite let go of it, or at least it never really lets go of us. And so I, I don't think that Zechariah was bitter or jaded in his unbelief. I mean, we're told in verse 6, he was righteous. He and his wife walked blamelessly in all the commandments of God. They took their faith seriously. But just because someone is serious about their faith or walks in communion with God doesn't mean that they are without longing or pain. It doesn't mean that their hearts aren't broken in some way. And we see that in this story. And when we think about our own place in God's story, how our hearts long to know God and love Him and serve Him without fear. And, and more than that, 
far more important than that, to be known by God and loved by him as, you know, for who we really are, not for some sort of image we project to him or to others. What our hearts long for, even if we don't realize that's what we're longing for. It's easy to resign ourselves to brokenness, to think that the promises of God's redemption simply are too good to be true, and to stop hoping that anything's really ever going to change. I mean, maybe you are here this morning and you're not a Christian and, and you don't think you ever really could be because you're too messed up or you've made too many mistakes. You know what's in your heart. You don't want to fake it. And you can't fathom the idea that a holy God would ever want to have anything to do with you. Or maybe you're here and you are a Christian and you feel pretty much the exact same way. That God will never really truly love and accept me unless I can somehow be great for him. I can accomplish something great. I can you know, do something that will make it up for all of the times that I've let him down. The idea that he can see my sin and still love me, it's unfathomable. And so like Zechariah and like Israel, we, we have this desire, but we feel empty. Our expectancy is barren. It's an easy place to be. But then God does something to marvel at. He keeps his word. Desire collides with surprise, and you see hearts explode in joy. So look at Luke one twenty four. After these days, Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, conceived. And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. And Luke 1.57, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And, they asked, and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened, his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. Awe, wonder. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Everyone who sees what's happening in Zechariah and Elizabeth's story is filled with wonder at God showing up. But no one more so than Zechariah and Elizabeth themselves. And you see Zechariah's heart explode into this prophetic song in verses 67 through 79, the, what Eric read earlier. But notice when he takes all of this in, all that God has promised, all that God has done for him and his wife, 
and, and his heart overflows with praise. Notice what he emphasizes in this song. It's not merely that God has given him and his wife a son. That's not the main thing he's praising God for here. It's not even primarily what his son will do, though we're getting closer. It's what God is doing to visit his people and redeem them. Not through Zechariah's son, but through the son Zechariah's boy will point everyone to. It's what God will do for undeserving sinners like Israel and like us, according to his mercy and grace. Look again at, at what Zechariah says, and notice how he emphasizes God's salvation in his praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. All that God has promised throughout Israel's story all that he's promised, he is now going to fulfill through what Zechariah describes as a horn of salvation. And that's a metaphor that we don't really use much today. Not exactly sure what that is. But, but you look at the Old Testament and you see that, that the horn is often a metaphor for a king and often a picture of strength. So, God is going to bring his new king. And this new king is going to bring salvation for God's people. Salvation from their enemies. The nations will no longer be able to oppress them. Salvation that frees God's people to serve him. To do what they were made to do. That we might serve him without fear. To be able to enter God's presence without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And as we keep reading in the song, this king will come to bring salvation from sin, from the ultimate problem in the story. Verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What we were made for, what we long for, even if we don't realize it, to know God and be known by him for who we really are, to be delivered from our sin and shame and serve him without fear in righteousness and holiness, walking in the way of his peace. What we desire more than anything else is now possible for sinners like us because God has kept his promise to send his king. 
That is the good news of Christmas. That is the gospel according to Christmas. Because, of course, if we keep reading the rest of Luke's story, we, we realize very quickly there's another birth story in these chapters. There's another miraculous pregnancy, another angelic visit, another song of praise, which is the ultimate collision of desire and surprise. God becoming man in Jesus Christ our King. And not even heaven can contain the marvel and wonder of what God is doing. As the angels announced to the shepherds in Luke 2, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. God, our Savior, our Creator, is making peace with sinful people through his coming King. We deserve death and judgment for our sin. Instead, God is offering life, forgiveness, a new relationship. This is what the Bible calls grace. Grace. It's when, when God gives us something absolutely incredible, even though we deserve something utterly terrible. That's grace. And that's the gospel according to Christmas. And, it, and it, of all gifts that we can receive, where desire and surprise meet, this is the greatest one. What we desire so much in relationship with God, but what we don't expect to find because we know what he'll see when he looks at our hearts. God surprises us. He surprises us with his son. You know, sometimes it's easier to believe all the other stories that we hear at Christmas time. You know, all of the other messages of what will give us that joy and that peace that we're looking for. You know, that, that this toy or this gadget will make me happy. Or that if I can just spend time with these people. Uh, or if I just kind of give things away, I'll feel better about myself. Because that's something, frankly, that I feel like I can control. Or do something about. That's easier for me to believe. But the idea that the God of the universe can look upon me, see what's in my heart, the things that I've said and done that no one else even knows because they're too embarrassing, too shameful to ever admit that he can see all of that and still love me and still use me for his kingdom. That is a message too good to be true. That is something marvelous, something wonderful. But as the rest of Luke's story tells us, bears witness to us, that's exactly the story that is true. Zechariah's son, John, does in fact grow up to prepare the way of the Lord. We know him as John the Baptist. 
who sets the stage for Jesus by preaching repentance and announcing that Israel's king is at hand. And the baby born of Mary and laid in a manger, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the eternal son of God. Luke tells us that he grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And this child, this man, lived his life in perfect obedience to God. He was the faithful covenant son that Israel was supposed to be, but failed to be. Who offers his perfect life in place of ours. He offers his life as a sacrifice of atonement for our sin. He was the great high priest and the Passover lamb at the same time. He bore in his own body the punishment that we deserved. He took upon himself all our sin, all our guilt, all our shame, that we might be forgiven, that we might be free. And he rose again from the dead to give new life to all who will believe in him. This is good news for all people. The gift of salvation is not something that we earn. Christmas so often tells us, be good. You know, think the naughty and nice list. Jesus tells us, be free. Take hold of me and be free. We receive that gift by faith. By putting the full weight of our hope and trust in him. That is the marvel of Christmas. That that. Our desire for a real relationship with God collides with the surprise of Christ's birth and the salvation that comes from him. And our hearts explode in joy at the wonder of it all. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies in the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. That is the grace of Christ, and that is something truly worth marveling over. Let's pray. Lord, may we never lose our awe at the message of Christmas. Lord, may we never think so highly of ourselves as to expect relationship with you that we have done something to earn it or deserve it, or that we are otherwise worthy. And may we never think so lowly of you that we're unable to believe that you would love us in our sin. Lord, your grace is so amazing. Your mercy is so incredible. Thank you, God, for the surprise of loving sinners like us, fill our hearts with joy and keep our hearts fixed on you. 
In Jesus' name, amen.